Hello, friends. Hit Factory here. Aaron coming at you from this side of the mic today. And I brought along a terrific guest with me this week. From Los Angeles, we've got musician and film writer Soraya Sabgadi. Soraya, welcome to Hit Factory. Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> I am thrilled to have you. I said I this time. I've been in this, this habit of saying we every week, even though it's just me on this side of the microphone. Uh, I am very, very excited for you to join today. And I'm really excited about the movie that we're going to be discussing as well. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, an engrossing ensemble film about routines, relationships, and all the small negotiations that we make uh, as a means of surviving the jungles of grief and loss in modernity. It is Adam McGoyan's 1994 breakout feature, Exotica. He comes in here every other night. He has his favorite drink at his favorite table with his favorite dancer. She's his angel. In a place of seduction, in a world of temptation. She really seems to be herself with you. A game is being played. Well, how do you know? She used to be her lover. And a trap is being set. You're out of here, man! I was set up. Now, a life is on the line. <laughs> I'm not gonna help you kill somebody. And one woman holds the key. It's going too far. You have no idea how far it's gone. Siskel and Ebert give it two enthusiastic thumbs up. Dazzling and spellbinding, says the New York Times. An erotic masterpiece. Do you feel like touching it? You're not supposed to touch. Exotica. Rated R. So, Soraya, at the beginning of things here, I always ask, uh, what is your history with this film? Because I believe this one was on a short list that you gave to me of uh, potential discussion <laughs> topics. Uh, and uh, I, I will be honest with you up front here. I had never seen an Egoyan film before. This is my very first. I loved it, just to get that out of the way at the top. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to know when you first came to Exotica, how you feel about it, uh, a, a capsule review of all the things that come up when you watch this movie. Yeah, it's funny. This movie was like a recent thing for me. And it's also my first, I'm pretty sure, an only Egoyan film that I've seen. My friend Katie suggested it to me. She was like, thematically, this really seems like a Soraya movie. You should watch it. So I think I watched it for the first time last year. And then... Uh, I have since watched it twice in this calendar year. So, yeah, I am an Exotica enjoyer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's yeah. uh, it's certainly one that feels like it uh, benefits from repeat viewings. And yes. we will talk a little bit about this film. Uh, spoiler up front for those. Well, not a spoiler yet, but a spoiler about incoming spoilers. We are going to be talking about this film in full. There are many layers and textures to this movie and some uh, plot points that reveal themselves over the course of it that really make the film and uh, and leave you with a, a very kind of heavy emotional weight on your shoulders <laughs> when you leave. Uh, so we're going to be talking about them. We're going to spoil them. If you haven't seen the movie, I can't imagine that you're here now listening to this eagerly. But uh, if, if you do want to see the movie unencumbered uh, with that knowledge and, and just going in cold, leave now, go watch it. 
We'll be here when you get back. I promise. <laughs> Watch it twice, even if you want to, just once, one time after another. Put it on, put it on again. So like you said, and, and like I already said, uh, Sarai, this is my very first Egoyan and my only Egoyan to date as well. I, I made some time in the schedule for later this weekend to uh, pursue further. I know The Adjuster and The Sweet Hereafter, two yeah. movies on, on either side of this one, uh, are currently streaming on Criterion Channel. So we'll probably be on my watch list. <laughs> but it's such a fascinating kind of film structurally, just starting from like kind of a bird's eye view of it. As I already mentioned, like these layers kind of reveal themselves. It is an ensemble piece featuring a couple of like extremely Canadian actors. Like yeah. when you see, uh, when you see Bruce Greenwood or Don McKellar show up, uh, or even Elias Codius, like you're like, yeah. okay, we're we're in Canada, we're in Toronto at yes. this point. And it starts out introducing us to all of these different characters and all of these kind of various little interactions that become cycles of routine over the course of the film. And I don't know about you, but this is the moment where maybe for some, it's like, what the fuck is going on? Going to tap out. I'm very confused. But it only entranced me further. It only drew me in more, <laughs> realizing that not only was I watching what felt like very kind of maybe verboten or or, or maybe just even kind of just like outright confusing, um, you know, deviant relationships that are going on here. Uh, I, I was like, I need to know more about how these characters know each other and how they got to this point. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's I I really held my tongue on saying pun intended when you said bird's eye view cuz there's some birds in this movie. Um <laughs> There <laughs> but, are indeed. Yeah, it's like the the whole structure of it like it's I I totally didn't even think about the routines aspect of it like any of the three times I watched it. I was very much like thinking about the the trick mirrors in the movie mm. and that's kind of how like every uh interaction between characters is shown and revealed like you see something and on the surface at a first glance you're like this feels pretty sinister or like whoa what is going on here and then as the layers get pulled back or as you finally see like from the other side of the mirror you realize like oh it's not really salacious or depraved per se it's more just like pretty sad mm -hmm. in a lot of ways so it's funny to think of that and I think I was reading that Egoyan said that he like wanted to structure the movie like a striptease so mm -hmm. you kind of you know more is revealed as you go on and it, things shape out differently than how you thought they would but yeah the the whole structure is crazy and like there's so many sorry i'm just gonna ramble there's like so Go many <laughs> there's so many things in this that are you see things that are fake and real but they're the same like type of object in the same space like right in those opening credits you have the mural of all the fake plants with like actual plants in front of it yeah. and there's real parrots and fake parrots and all sorts of stuff <laughs> like that like it's just so crazy how many real and fake doppelganger situations are just happening in the background of everything. Absolutely. Yeah, it's there's facsimiles everywhere and there's all of this stuff that to me kind of evokes this idea of like performance. And and in this film we're seeing both the performative nature of relationships and some of those things as they're sort of uh you know conscripted by society itself, some of those by what people believe uh, or, or how other people believe they're perceived. Um, but then we also see the thing underneath it, which is like the real 
essence of themselves and the the kind of weird ways that they have like carved these pathways for themselves and and these behaviors and and these habits that feel strange and and awkward but you realize with over the course of the film that like the fact that everyone has one is actually kind of liberating of that idea of kind of strangeness that's totally. like oh yeah this is just a a really carefully observed way of identifying that we all have these kind of strange routines these strange behaviors that we embody that we develop that become like a salve a, a comfort for us in a way yeah. over time and speaking more to your comment about Egoyan's like conceptualization of the film as a striptease we should maybe start there and talk a little bit about just Egoyan as filmmaker and and how he comes to and arrives at Exotica he's already made a handful of films at this point uh, and has mentioned in interviews, yes, the striptease component that uh, <laughs> the the film itself was structured as something that was revelation after revelation, leading to like ultimately catharsis. Uh, but also that he literally had sort of a, an epiphany while at a strip club, <laughs> or or thinking about the environment, which is like, and maybe this is you know kind of like a there's a little bong hit, like you know throw up a peace sign <laughs> kind of moment for me. But it, you know his his uh, remarks are something along the lines of, I began to think about the fact that like men pay for these women to dance for them and they can't touch them, but the women can touch them, and it's all this transactional kind of relationship going on here. Um, that's you know defined by these very clear rules, and you wonder what's going through both of their minds and what they're getting from it. And I'm like, all right, all right, dude, I get you, I, I feel you on that. Uh, he also mentions that there is a, another scenario in which I guess he was audited at some point in time by a, <laughs> someone from, uh, from a state department. Um, and, uh, they thought that for a moment they had found some irregularities with some dealings with the previous like producing partner and that he had, uh, kind of casually suggested that Egoyan may have been like betrayed by this person who he was actually very close with or that something nefarious may have been happening. And uh, in, in an interview with, I think, BFI, Egoyan mentions that just the the mere fact that an implication from this person granted with this power could make me doubt myself and my relationships was enough for me to think mm. uh, this is compelling and I have to make a character who also possesses this power. So uh, it, it's interesting just hearing and, and thinking about all these little minor instances in his life that kind of <laughs> congregate together over the course of this movie. That's so funny. I didn't realize that he had also gotten audited. Like, <laughs> God, what a bummer. <laughs> it is a bummer. And, you know, it's it's funny. There There is certainly like, we should say the the auditor in this, the, the kind of uh, tax auditor is played by uh, the great Bruce Greenwood, Canadian yes. actor, um, his character named Francis, who, who plays heavily in the film in a lot of different ways. Um, but for his profession, it feels like Egoyan has quite a bit of scorn. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. He, for a little while, they make him out to be like kind of an unrepentant asshole that he's like, <laughs> very no nonsense that he's coming in to you know look at uh, Don McKellar's finances and this exotic pet shop that he's run that he's inherited from his father uh and he is just every step along the way in those early interactions like looking at this kind of mess of an office and the files that are sort of out of organization and and all over the place and this you know cacophony of <laughs> drawers and stacks and whatnot uh and he's so brutally judgmental about all of it even the way that we like take in the pet shop when we get in there, like I was grossed out too. I was like, God, like I would not want to do some <laughs> serious work in this room with like all the swampy fish tanks with like 
there's the one part when Don McKellar is like fishing the dead fish out of there and like all the bird sounds and whatever. It was funny, though, thinking about like, I guess later in the movie when he finds the gun in there. At for, like it took me a second because I was like, oh, this is Canada. Like that's a way bigger deal yeah. in Canada to find a gun <laughs> than it would be here in the US. And I was like, mm-hmm. ah, yes, different country. Yeah, it's, it feels like <laughs> such a like a, a, a kind of like non event. Yeah, in totally. Genre fiction of of the American kind of like purview, you know, and and realizing, oh yeah, this is something that is a kind of a bombshell development over the course of this. <laughs> Uh, is is startling and and also like really fun to imagine. There's so much about this that rings is so sort of uh, distinctly Canadian. Totally. Uh, <laughs> one of those things, of course, is that like it, it is shot in Toronto. Yes. Uh, in and around some like you know fictional environments. Uh, one of them is the eponymous strip club Exotica. I, I don't know. There's something about Toronto specifically. There's some. It has this like strange cacophony of like austere urban kind of corridors to it but it also has like a lot of kind of like activity and vibrance in certain spaces anytime i see it on screen i i'm always very taken by it and all immediately like put uh kind of in a, in a place of unease i'm like this place feels kind of alien and strange to me i was totally gonna say the same thing like i mean of course i think my only real aside from this movie experience with toronto on screen is just like in cronenberg movies yeah which it's of course always <laughs> Like, I'm like, what is going on in Toronto? Like, why is all of this crazy stuff happening over there? And it does, at least for an American audience member like myself, it feels like you can't quite place it as a city, you know, because it's not in the U.S., even though it almost really does feel that way. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, you are really reminded of it through, like, Elias Cotez's character always just saying, like, hey, after everything. (laughs) You know, like I forgot. I like for a second, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot they actually do that. And it's not like a fake thing that we made up about Canadians. It's real. (laughs) It's all really there. Yeah. Their intonation and and the kind of like pattern in which a lot of people deliver their lines has a sort of foreignness to it, even though we're, you know, ostensibly engaging in in our native language as well. But it's uh, there's something just a little bit distancing about all of it that I think makes it all more captivating to me as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is also probably purposeful. Like, I think it's a really interesting and strange choice that the strip club owner is a pregnant woman. Yeah. Like, obviously it has implications for the plot of the movie and also she was actually pregnant with a Goyen's child during that. But like, it would be like, I think they even say that later when she's like, why don't I introduce some of the girls? And he's, I think... Elias says to her, like, don't you think it would make people uncomfortable being in your state <laughs> or whatever, which like, yeah, I guess that might yeah. make some dudes uneasy at the strip club. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe I don't. someone in there probably likes it. Someone in there is like, yeah, get the pregnant lady up on the stand. I mean, yeah, she could just be one of the other characters of women who's in a strange costume doing some strange gyrating to Leonard Cohen or whatever. So. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's talk about Exotica a little bit. The yeah. the club. I wish it, it was real. Oh my god! It looks it so is, fun. <laughs> it, it, it. I mean, it looks both like gorgeous and like hypnotic and mesmerizing. There's, I don't know. There's something about that. It's like I'm not going to psychoanalyze myself too much or even make myself sound cool. I like like Rainforest Cafe. You know, For like sure. I, I like when there's like plants indoors and like all this like foliage yeah. and stuff that's like evoking that sense of 
we'll keep coming back to the word a lot on the show. I'm sure the exotic. Um, <laughs> and so when you see it, you're like, this feels kind of like a play place. Like it feels like a kind of like, you know, environment that you are allowed to sort of, I mean, literally undress in, but yes. also kind of like metaphorically undress yourself into and just like embrace a little bit of this kind of like carnality and, and yeah. more sort of just uh, instinctual level of of existence. And it's it's beautiful in there. Meanwhile, it's also like a deeply like unerotic environment often <laughs> in there. Like it, it's not like sterile, but there's uh, something about the way that uh, Egoyan shoots all of it. And, you know, he, he mentions too that the kind of conceptualization of the architecture was based around uh, the panopticon, of which <laughs> is, you know, uh, for, for those unfamiliar with the term, it's uh, effectively an, an architectural design of a prison in which uh, one officer, one security personnel uh, guy uh, can effectively see everybody and observe all the prisoners from one single vantage point uh, where none of the other prisoners know for sure whether or not they're being observed. So everybody behaves accordingly all the time, unsure of whether or not they're uh, ever, you know, kind of casually being watched. So immediately, I mean, if, if that doesn't sound sexy, it's not. And that I think is like <laughs> something that uh, comes off immediately from some of the camera choices and, and the placement within the scene as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's also interesting that the mirrors are shaped like a woman's body, mm-hmm. like in the bathrooms and in the weird panopticon center of the club, which <laughs> it's also really funny when like, I mean, funny in like a sad way, I guess, towards the end of the film when um, when Chrissy realized like when she explains that she had the realization that like, you know, she was initially told that the weird middle section with the hallway with the mirrors was built for the dancers protection so that people could you know make sure that they weren't in getting like harassed or anything but it was actually in truth built for like one of their wealthy patrons who wanted to just be a weirdo and a voyeur and it's like the whole <laughs> subversion of her thinking that she is at she thinks she's safe in her workplace and she's very much not safe in her workplace mm-hmm. doing this thing and instead like the thing she thought that was created for her protection is not protecting her at all it's something that she's acutely aware of in the space and the patrons are not aware of, but even so there's a means by which that exists. And there is a reason for that existing that is uh, left kind of obscured from her as well. Yeah. Uh, We see the, I'm going to get confused here. I say two way mirror. I know that it's also a one way mirror. Some people call it (laughs) one way glass. There's like four different names for it. I had to check because I saw it referred to different ways. I always say two way mirror, one in which you can see in one way uh, and the other looks like a reflective surface. We'll say that. Uh, But, but those two way mirrors that are uh, there in the, in the club are also present in one of the first scenes in the movie yeah. when Don McKellar's character, uh, Thomas, the pet shop owner, is coming through customs at the airport. Yes. And we are given uh, a vantage point and introduced to a very minor character who will show up later in a really <laughs> compelling way. Um, but this this sort of trainee amongst this airport security at customs. And uh, he's being instructed by kind of like a, a veteran guard and saying like, watch everybody and like watch their mannerisms. What you're looking for is everyone to kind of tell you 
what it is they're hiding or, or, or rather that they are hiding something and right. that it's your job then to try to uncover and unearth what that thing is. And this kind of idea of, uh, you know, this, this voyeurism or, or this, uh, perception of yourself or that you're kind of not keyed into or that you're not aware of kind of runs through the entirety of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Like everyone is being watched, whether it's um, Francis even like, you know, auditing Thomas and going through that whole process and figuring all of that out or Thomas not realizing that he is being watched in the airport and the dancers not knowing if or when they're being watched by someone else inside the mirrors. Like it's all like, I don't know. It's just it's it's a lot. It made me weirdly paranoid after after, every time i've watched the movie i'm like oh no like can my neighbors see me right now like what's going on or like i always think there's an invisible camera now somewhere (laughs) (laughs) or that you're running out into the world and that mirror that you're you know adjusting yourself in is actually uh one that has someone on the other side of it yes yeah i actually used to work in a place where the in like it was a it was basically a one-way mirror on the outside so people like would walk by and like look at their own reflections in the glass but like we could all just see them inside before and it was very funny to like just it feels too intimate to know a stranger's mirror face and yet here I was being subjected to it all the time against my will so (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I think that's something that Egoyan's kind of playing with right is like the the ways that we uh shed some of that performance when we're not uh, when we don't think that we're being watched. Totally. And in this early moment too, we kind of see something that I've already talked about a little bit where there's like this idea of, you know, normalcy versus deviance and yeah. and people's behaviors and the way that all these characters do kind of operate in ways that feel unorthodox. They feel weird to an outside observer. And when we start the movie, we don't really know why these people are behaving the way they are and exactly what the nature of their relationships are. Uh, and at the very beginning here, you see that there are like actual social, like governmental organizational <laughs> strictures that are dictating the way that people behave. And that in light of those things, like people behave a certain way or are expected to behave a certain way. And that anything that kind of diverges or digresses from that particular kind of participation in society and p- behavioral kind of quality suddenly becomes something suspicious to us. You know, it's it's a suspicion that's aroused in the viewer in the film. I think right off the bat, you know, we we see Bruce Greenwood uh, getting a dance from Mia Kirshner's character. Um, and we recognize that it's not exactly like a standard transactional, like, yeah. you know, guy and dancer uh, relationship. He is sort of kind of comforting her with his words and you know saying things to her like how could anybody hurt you like yeah no one should ever hurt you you don't deserve that like like saying these kind of very tender things while she's in a scroll girl outfit you know like a tartan skirt and like a, <laughs> a white shirt and tie like revealing her naked body to him it's it's very uh unsettling but also at the same time you're like what is happening here i i, I need to know what this is yeah totally it's weird. To, like, I don't know. Also, like, maybe maybe this was a personal choice, but I also do find it kind of funny that, like, her specific style of doing the private dance is, like, very, like, 
it's very jerky and like I guess a little <laughs> bit more of like the Nomi Malone flavor of mm-hmm. of dancing than like some of the other dancers in the club that you can see in the background sometimes. And I always thought that it was kind of funny, like the juxtaposition of her like very staccato and big moves while he is saying all these like nice comforting things to her. It's a really weird uh, like convergence of sensations. Yeah. And you also kind of wonder too, like how much of this is a sort of like practiced, like kind of ingenue quality because yeah. she has embraced this schoolgirl persona. Exactly. Uh, and how much of it is just like, oh no, she actually like, th- this is her revealing who she is, even when she's not here on stage performing. Right. Like she, she actually is someone who just like, doesn't feel confident in this body and is a little jerky and you yeah. know, like kind of uh, kind of uh, inexperienced in this role. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely interesting. I think going back to something you said too about, uh, just going back to like the, you mentioned the airport um, scene and I feel like like the, the phrase baggage ends up coming in a lot in the movie mm-hmm. and I feel like it is kind of funny not to bring up the puns again, but, you know, <laughs> Thomas is arriving at the airport. He's got his baggage and like um, he, it. I also forgot, too, that he inherits the exotic pet store from his father and the Zoe, the strip club owner. She inherits Exotica from her mother and her parents, mm-hmm. too. So it's like both of them are kind of inheriting the baggage of both of their respective exotic professions exotic in different ways but Mm -hmm. it's still like it's it's kind of something that's just thrust upon them and it's not necessarily a choice that they had in the matter and now they're just kind of rolling with it yeah we see we see these characters throughout all coming to the start of the film with like you said all this baggage already being carried uh all of these experiences and preordained roles within a society and within these relationships. Uh, Thomas, you said, Zoe, you said another one uh, is Sarah Polly's character, Tracy, oh, yeah. um, who I, I guess we can just kind of reveal it up front here. But when we're first introduced to her, she is being driven home by Bruce Greenwood, by Francis, after he comes home from the club. So we know that he's been out, you know, getting this dance at Exotica for the night. And then he drives to like a, you know, kind of shoddy apartment structure on top of like a convenience store and pays Sarah Polly, who, you know, is visibly like a teenager, (laughs) uh, pays her like 40 bucks cash, Canadian dollars. Uh, I don't know what the exchange rate is. I I have a feeling (laughs) it's probably, uh, you know, more than a, a US dollar, but gives her money, says like, say hi to your dad for me and then sends her home on her way. And you're like, again, what the fuck is this? What is this relationship? Yeah. What, how is, what, what are the definitions of this and the parameters of this? Because you, at face value here, you just paid uh, a minor who's in your car with you at but nighttime, you clearly, at nighttime, but clearly have a relationship with her dad. So this right. is like something that is, uh, you know, at, at least in some regard, consensual <laughs> and, and known. Yeah, Uh, I felt like it was more sinister when I first saw it, honestly, because it was like, say hi to your dad for me. Like, I don't know, like maybe it's like a term for someone who's not her dad or it's like the dad is up to something really horrible. Like I was just like, what in the hell is happening right now? And like, you know, him after 
driving this teen like preteen girl home after he has been hanging out with the girl in the schoolgirl outfit at the strip club like it felt so crazy i was like what am i watching (laughs) yeah the implication of it right because we get the sense from his relationship with mia kirshner that uh maybe he does have sort of like a you know like kind of like pedophilic tendency or you know has this attraction to young young women young girls uh and so then so to see this there's like all this implication in yeah. it about what it might be. But we come to learn that she is actually his niece. And uh, the great Victor Garber is her father, uh, Bruce Greenwood's uh, brother. And she comes over to Bruce Greenwood's house in order to, quote unquote, babysit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where there is no child anymore because... Uh, he has lost his daughter uh, and his wife in quick succession some years ago and is keeping with a routine of normalcy of hiring a babysitter to, right. you know, quote unquote, like watch the kid while he goes out at night to spend time at Exotica. Um, so it's just, you know, these these layers revealed of this grief, of this loss, of this thing that at first feels very strange. And, and like I said, you know, almost kind of like nefarious but is revealed to be something that is actually just profoundly, brutally sad, (laughs) brutally sad. Uh, And I guess, you know, going back to the point I was initially making about it's that Sarah Polly's character too is inheriting the baggage of her family and her her father uh, because she's doing this almost as like a favor to her uncle, courtesy of her father and we find out very late in the movie through just like a, a, a like brief anecdotal kind of thing. We're not even sure if it's confirmed or not. But uh, the suggestion that uh, part of the reason that Bruce Greenwood's character was met with so much suspicion after his daughter disappeared and before right. she was found dead and they thought that maybe he did it uh, is because uh, his brother, Victor Garber, was having an affair with his wife over the course of several years. Right. So you almost get the sense that like she is doing this out of obligation to almost like pay back a debt of like guilt that her father feels towards his brother. Well, so there's there's some weird like I I, I had this written down because there's like some weird hints about like what's going on because so I don't remember my first experience with this, but I don't know how like apparent it was to you or like when when you realized that Victor Garber's character was in a wheelchair because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily make it super obvious until like you get deeper into the film, I guess, yeah. unless you're, you know, you're observant and looking at it. But he uh, like, OK, it's all going to come back to this. But one of the interesting things, because this movie is just, you know, littered with whatever could f- fall into the category of exotic. So it's a lot <laughs> of white people who have uh, interracial relationships or sexual proclivities specifically. Yeah. Like Thomas, every time he tries to pick up a guy at the ballet, it's always a guy who's not white. Mm-hmm. And then Bruce Greenwood's uh, late wife was black, as you learn from family photos in a flashback. And then Victor Garber's character throughout the movie is wearing like I can't I don't know I can't describe it any other way aside from like weirdly racial for a white guy because he's yes. wearing like the the free South Africa shirt at one point and then he's mm-hmm. got like the Bob Marley shirt like all of the shirts that he wears have to do with black culture in some way. Yeah, it's like it's all of these characters who are like, you know, very distinctly Canadian and yeah. and thus, you know, like 
rather white, all kind of adopting these relationships to, I mean, a word that we'll come back to, which, you know, we, we mean in the best sense here, even though it may sound pejorative, but the exotic things yeah. that feel kind of foreign to them or, or, or distinct and different and apart from their own experiences and existences. Um, that's an interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that, that all of these different characters have these kind of ties familiarly and relationally to, yeah. to that. Um, but I guess some of that probably comes back to maybe Egoyan himself as a filmmaker. Uh, so he is the son of Armenian Egyptian immigrants. He was right. born in Cairo in the 60s. He immigrates to uh, Toronto, I believe, at the time. I think it's Toronto where he's, he is now <laughs> uh, in, in uh pretty quick succession after his birth, like only like three or four years afterward. Um, but then like kind of re-embraces uh, at, at least his Armenian heritage a little bit later in his life around the time he's in university and becomes a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So there is this like expression of uh, like the, the diaspora and a lot of, you know, ideas about the convergence of Western culture and yeah. his Armenian roots and and just other cultures like non-white uh, experiences around the globe uh, reflected also in the score of yeah, the movie. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, like the score has a lot of Indian influence, I believe. But that I was just that also got me thinking too, like even Mia Kirshner's character and Elias Koteas have that like strange love triangle with the strip club owner and she's Armenian. Mm. So like, right. Yeah, it really does. It's, it's just touching everyone in this movie, which is so wild. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating, like very complex kind of like character, uh, web that's, that's getting spun here. Uh, but on that note of, of what you were mentioning about the score, it, it is written by the great, uh, Michael Dana who collaborates with Adam McGoin quite a bit. He uh, is also a sometimes collaborator of uh, Ang Lee mm. and did his score for his 1997 film, The Ice Storm. I bring it up just because uh, he does a similar trick in that movie where it is a period piece set in the 1970s and very, very white. It is like, you know, um, New Englanders during a, a winter holiday and all the kind of interminglings and mixings of all of these experiences across generations. But throughout the film, Michael Dana graces it with a lot of uh, indigenous American mm. instrumentation and sounds to kind of evoke this sense of uh, a place and like a land that's there and acknowledging kind of the, the heritage that begins even before this kind of cellar colonial experience. And so it's interesting to see him doing that again, compelling to see him do that again in a, a film like this where he's bringing in this Indian influence. I think he even recorded part of the score in Bombay right? Uh, along with Toronto to get that sound and get some of that instrumentation and performers for, uh, for the score uh, and just unsettle us even further, pull us out of a, a sense of like a, a definitive and, and culturally defined place. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring those big hairy palms together, gentlemen. Give it up. Yeah, gentlemen, yes. Have a nice big round of applause for Linda. Yeah. Yes, indeed, Linda. And just to remind you that there is nothing Linda would love more than to slink over to your table and give you your own private show for only $5. That's right. $5 is all it takes to have one of our beautiful foxes 
come over to your table and get you all hot and bothered. But hey, why be bothered when you're being treated like a king? You've had a rough day. Don't you think you owe it to yourselves to do something that'll make you feel like you're someone special? You are someone special. Five dollars is all it takes to prove it. Let's talk, too, about that romantic triangle you were talking about yeah. with Mia Kirshner, with Elias Koteas, and Arizne uh, Kanjian, who is Adam McGuane's, as you mentioned, real-life wife, pregnant at the time with his IRL baby. Yeah. Um, so it's not, just, it's not just a fake bump in the movie. Uh, th- this is a, a really compelling one, too, because it's in so many ways, like all these different people longing for one another, having like an ex- explicit need for the other person in a, a very specific kind of transactional way. Obviously, right. we've got like the romantic relationship between Elias Kotias and Mia Kirshner. We've got the kind of financial component of Arizne Kanjian and Mia Kirshner needing one another because it's a employer-employee relationship. Likewise with Elias Kotias and Kanjian, but he is also the father of her baby. Right. And we come to learn that they are not romantically involved that they've actually physically <laughs> drafted up a contract that sets the terms that he will uh, be the father of the child, that he will like impregnate her, uh, but have like no involvement whatsoever in the child's life, will not raise uh, the, the child with her, will not like cohabitate, anything of the sort. Um, and it's it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and then there's the part where where the two women like, share a kiss and all of that stuff too Mm -hmm. like it's really like a completed and strange love triangle and (laughs) like god that's a lot of hr violations in one business to be honest that's kind of stressful (laughs) (laughs) you're telling me that's a it's a lot going on yeah at the point that they shared the kiss i was like everybody's just fucking everybody here like what is going on (laughs) for real man i was like what in the world is going on here it's it's crazy too just because like it really does like seep into uh his role as i guess like the most normal strip club dj in the world apparently (laughs) like i don't know like his little intros are so weird that he gives for her specifically but like Mm -hmm. for all the dancers like i don't know how like, obviously, like, it works for the movie. I absolutely love it. And, like, when I watched it this time around, I was taking notes and there was, like, one part when he did something and I was like, yeah, he's just, like, me for real. Like, why am I relating to his character the most? I'm totally a psycho. But the, the stuff he says, like, about the dancers, like, about her specifically, I guess, it's just so creepy and strange. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know how that wouldn't be off-putting to the other people at the club. Yeah. And like part of his character, though, is is that he is in a place where he is feeling this sense of abandonment from her. Yeah. And and so frustrated by it. And, you know, we hear his same spiel again, one of these habitual routines coming into play where he says, you know, like, what's what's so desirable about a schoolgirl. School girl. <laughs> like, what? What? What is it? Is it her? You know, like her innocence know, or something. Her innocence yeah. or her her devil may care attitude. Whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so you know, it, it keeps coming back around, but steadily you begin to see that what he's actually trying to do is stay within his character, yeah. do something that could feel 
you know, to a, a certain perspective still within line of, of his work and, and still sexy, but he's also kind of like quietly undermining her as a sexual object. He's actually mm-hmm. making it so that, like you said, people in the club begin to almost like approach her with a sense of unease or feel creepy about wanting to like purchase her her services privately. Right. He's he's getting fed up with her paying attention like sexually with even within the dynamics of the club to all these other men, but very specifically to Francis, to Bruce yeah. Greenwood. Yeah. And it's like it's funny at the end when I guess you realize like what what Mia Kirshner's character's baggage is and that she feels, I guess, neglected by her parents. And so like she's kind of searching like it seems almost like Zoe is both like even though they're kind of, I guess, in some sort of sexual relationship, she also is like a maternal figure to her. Mm-hmm. And it's there's a weird crossing of the wires. And I guess it's like a similar thing with her and Bruce Greenwood where he speaks to her like a father figure and like all of that stuff, but yet there's still a strange sexual component to it. And like, there's something still so taboo about their relationship that it only exists in the space of the strip club. Yeah. There's everybody just kind of has their wires crossed a bit and that they want multiple seemingly um, impossible things like things that are not compatible together from the same person. Like you mm-hmm. don't go to like it's it's not normal to go to someone who is a parental figure for like sexual or romantic gratification. Like that's weird. And yet <laughs> the people in this movie are doing just that. Yeah. And with that dynamic specifically between Mia Kirshner and Bruce Greenwood, it, it is like a thing the movie sort of uh, teases for a little while is transactional in the sense that uh, Kirshner is making money off of this and in return providing him with a sense of catharsis because he is projecting so many of his feelings uh, about his lost daughter onto her right a- another layer of again that kind of taboo yeah. of like you know something sexually gratifying and you know kind of like promiscuous here in relation to like right. a, a, a blood relative and like your progeny right. is is strange but it, within the dynamic he's you know, clearly getting what he needs out of this and she's happy to oblige. And as you mentioned at the end, when we kind of get uh, our, our, our final revelations, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a little bit, but we realize that this is actually not just a financial transaction for Mia right. Kirshner's character. We find out that there actually is the emotional component to it as well, that her being able to hear those words of protection of like, you know, defense and and this kind of paternal quality to them is something vital and essential to like her and and being able to navigate a lot of the trauma that she's carrying as well. Yeah. And the other thing that was that I thought was interesting upon this rewatch was that when he is goaded into touching her at the club, he doesn't like touch anything like like he grabs at her womb area. He doesn't touch her butt or her breast or anything like that. He like grabs like right where like a baby would be, I guess, if she were to have it like right over there. And I just found that to be such like a, I was like, oh yeah, like that definitely, that definitely has got a lot of meaning to it. He's not just grabbing her in a, in a sexual way. It's like, it's, it's weirdly paternal and yet it's also like romantic and strange. Yeah. Yeah. That seems incredible by the way. I, I want to talk a little bit about it and, and focus in on it for just a moment. Yeah. So Obviously, you know, there are rules in the club very explicitly. The men are not allowed to touch the women. The women are allowed to touch the men while they're dancing for them. 
and we know and have seen uh, Elias Coteus's character just kind of seething from his like his crow's next nest, his his panopticon, you know, like uh, watchtower for what must be you know months and months and months now at this point, if right. not years. Um, and he's quietly getting more and more frustrated with the relationship that they are developing together um, from afar because he's losing uh, a romantic affiliation with her. Right. And so he goes into the bathroom at the same time as Bruce Greenwood's character. And while he's in the stall, kind of speaks to him from outside and puts on a, a very funny accent. I don't know what yeah. he's trying to do, but like he sounds sort of like Eastern European for a little bit, but but puts on this kind of affect. And tells Bruce Greenwood, you know, like, oh, I see you with her all the time. I'm in here a lot, too. She really wants you to touch her. And he resists. He's like, I, you're not supposed to do that. It's against the rules. I don't think that's true. And he's like, no, I, I know. Like, And, you know, quoting the Leonard Cohen song, he even says, right. Every, everybody knows. Exactly. You know, everybody knows that she really, really wants that. That's what she's looking for. That's the thing that will make her happy is touching her. And because we know that this dynamic is one that is built around sort of like a mutual uh, emotional kind of like support, when Greenwood goes back to the table and gets the dance, like you said, you know, he touches her like on her stomach, just kind yeah. of like on her bare exposed stomach, like in like the womb area. But when he does it too, he's not even looking at her. Yeah, he's he like, like looking looks down. down. Yeah, and it's—I mean, it's—it's it's a very beautifully composed and like framed shot, just the, in the way that it looks. But it's almost like he's doing it willfully, but like you know, kind of frustrated that he has to. He's like, "I'm yeah. doing this because I've heard that this is what you want," but uh, he's not happy about it either. Yeah. He's doing something almost, you know, kind of like as a martyr in that moment. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it's totally strange. Also, just like, I don't know, random stupid question, but I was like, what is he doing in the bathroom? Because when when Elias is in there talking to him, he's like just wrapping his hand in toilet paper. Yeah. I don't know why he's doing that. He's just standing there wrapping his hand. I, I was confused by this, too. I, you know, <laughs> they I don't think they ever really go into it. I, yeah. You get the sense that like this is part of the ritual, too, because we've seen him previously mm. go into the bathroom sort of like midway through the dance, yeah. right? Like he he never really finishes the song with her. He never really ever sees her leave the table. Right. She starts to kind of reveal herself. They speak to one another. He says his kind of words of affirmation. And then he gets up and abruptly leaves and then goes to to the John. Right. But yeah, I, when when you see him, like I, I, it must have been something. I don't know why I'm even like trying to extrapolate out or, or or guess, but like you know, you, you you have to assume that it's just something that he and Agoyan came up with together. Like, right. what do I do in there? Like, right. I don't know. Go to go to the stall and just like wrap toilet paper <laughs> around your hand. Just whatever it is that you do in there it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything. It's just yeah. like it's it's just part of this cycle and this process where you go almost to like. <laughs> decompress and be alone and for the first time in the space like unobserved yeah yeah it's uh i mean it's it's one among many of these like kind of fascinating details in that space alone yeah i want to talk to about thomas the yeah. pet shop owner we've talked a little bit already about how he comes into contact with bruce greenwood's character who comes to audit him mm -hmm. um we have talked a little bit less though you did uh, allude to his routine that he assumes, which is going to the ballet every single night and <laughs> picking up uh, a strange man. 
and, <laughs> and even and even this is one that is just like it, it takes on so many interesting curvatures because it's not it's not a straight path to like sexual gratification for him right he he has all these kind of mannerisms all these behaviors that he adopts within it where he got these tickets you know gifted to him for uh, a, a guy sharing a cab with him right. and not wanting to pay his part of the fare he goes and he sells one of the tickets to this man who accompanies him. And then at the end of the performance, he gives the Their gentleman back. back his money. Yeah. Like, I, I feel bad taking it. I got these tickets for free. And he does this every single time, right? It's it's become like sort of a, an adopted <laughs> performance, a role he takes on. And sometimes he goes home with them and sometimes he doesn't. But it's just, again, like a, a new pathway that gets carved in his brain and this like new, totally. this new kind of thing that he, he follows day in and day out. And uh, again, just like funny how revealing it is of like his, whatever this is that he's seeking for, like he's not even looking necessarily for like the sexual gratification. He's just like looking for some sort of human connection that frees itself and liberates itself of like a transaction at at the end of it like i think he wants to like come off as such a charitable and nice individual like oh he's like kind of being the hero of the situation by Mm -hmm. getting this nice strapping lad into the ballet for free or whatever until yeah like trick him into to trick one of these guys into you know wanting to go home with him even if he doesn't want to himself and one of those guys that he uh, winds up getting to come home with him after the ballet winds up, uh, as I alluded to earlier, <laughs> uh, being the guard at customs who observes him when he comes in. Uh, and while they're at his apartment, he reveals that he is indeed smuggling in, uh, what, are, what are they called? Hyacinth macaws. Macaw, yep. Yeah. Another parrot, by the way. Another parrot. Uh <laughs> And so he's, you know, he has these these eggs incubating in this, you know, very fancy, expensive looking machine. And they fall asleep one night, presumably after copulating. And he wakes <laughs> up the next night or the next morning, rather. And uh, the, the gentleman is gone and has left a message on his machine uh, saying, like, you're not awake yet. So you don't know what I've done. Um, <laughs> but he's but he's he's taken the eggs and like given them to some sort of organization that. I don't know. I guess Canada has some sort of, you know. I think uh, it was the zoo. It might have been a zoo organization or, you know, it it could just be some like 501c3 nonprofit that in Canada exists to buy up like rare bird eggs that you find when you go home with somebody. Exactly. As as it happens all the time. It's it's a common occurrence in Canada <laughs> specifically, this smuggling of exotic birds. Uh, yeah, we I mean we see him face the ramifications of this, and and the way that that comes in is is a fun little twist. Uh, I don't know what else to make of it besides the fact that it's just, you know, it, it gives me this impression that Toronto is only like twelve people. Totally. <laughs> like so, uh, which I like in movies. You know, there has to be this kind of like elevated sort of sense of drama in those areas and i like when things kind of recreate this sort of uh sensation of of watching like something on the stage where it's yeah. like there's only so many players and like the rest of the world is populated by these kind of ghosts right. that walk through life but we're all going to intersect at any given moment i do think it's funny though the way that he leaves that voicemail like where he says you're not awake so you don't know what i've done and you're just like what did you do like you if do? <laughs> i was asleep and just waking up and heard that voicemail i would be so terrified i would be like cool there's a body in my closet um i've been stabbed i've been operated yeah. on right now, i would not immediately jump to yeah this man stole my my rare bird eggs <laughs> which also it's so funny that tom is just like 
immediately tells him the truth about it. Like that is so crazy. If you're yeah. doing something on that level of illegal, perhaps lie a little bit longer. <laughs> I don't know. Like, don't just tell yeah. some dude you just met at the ballet. Like, oh yeah, like I'm smuggling birds into the country. <laughs> it's a little crazy. It it is really crazy, but it's I, I think a thing that feels kind of deliberate on Agoyan's part in the structure of his story, which is that all these people are so isolated from one another yeah. that at the point that they finally reach a level of connection that feels, I don't know, like something that, you know, modernity forsakes so often, they're yeah. they're ready and willing to expose like everything, all of themselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the nature of the club, I guess. And I mean, the voicemail reveal is similar to the reveal of everything else in the story, just condensed where like, you're like, oh no, what crazy thing did this guy do? And you're like, oh no, he just, he did, he did his job, I guess, and took the bird eggs. Like, yeah, it's all just the whole, like that, everything about that see in an interaction like each little part is a synecdoche of the entire movie which is mm. really crazy the way that like I, it, I mean obviously like someone who makes a movie that's masterful like this is really firing on all on all cylinders but it's really cool to see something like that and just still be like like it's cool that we all still have the ability to watch all these amazing things and yet still be like wow this is so cool that he thought about all of these things and he put a fake parrot in the strip club at the dj <laughs> desk and then he's got a real parrot on victor garber and then there's the real parrot eggs like in in the incubator and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff like it's just there's so many breadcrumbs that are so deliberately and delicately placed and it's just wow i'm doing the chef's kiss hand right now it feels so good it does it feels incredible and one of my other favorite settings in the film is another sort of uh ground on which we see another relationship and two characters come into contact which is the aforementioned pet store that oh, yeah. thomas owns hideous and terrifying pet store <laughs> it's like it's full of like blue like beaded curtains and like you know kind of garish wallpaper <laughs> and it, it's just kind of like perpetually a mess and especially when you kind of walk into the back corridors there's all these tanks on the walls but there's right. they, they look like they're kind of like coated with this patina of like algae they're all like gurgling and bubbling and yep. they have like strange unidentifiable creatures in them like they never look like fish yeah. in there they look like strange like you know like deep sea dwelling kind of like monstrosities it's a bit of a weird existence call forward i guess with don yes. mckeller being in that setting it's kind of funny <laughs> i thought the exact same thing actually i was like this is the moment to me that feels uh the most cronenberg out yeah of this and, and sort of how unsettling it is totally it's yeah it's very gross but yeah it's funny i guess too like thinking about how i guess the facade and like the regular part of the store is you know the presentable part but then even even the building has its dual nature where it's got the foul bowels i guess of the, the pet store where all the <laughs> where all the cooked books are hiding and the gun right. the secret gun and the weird vats of of creation and algae and slime and all of that stuff yeah, it's really good. It gives me the sensation that like the like you said, they kind of you know, they personify the building. It almost feels like it's like kind of breathing. It has yeah. this sort of this like maw of, of itself that yeah. is just like gross and decrepit and, and rotting. There's also just like that one part that I found so funny, the little exchange when Francis is like, oh, I brought you coffee, but I didn't know how you take it. And he's like, oh, I'll, black is fine. He's like, oh, okay. Well, I put cream in yours so you could take this. And he takes a zip and he's like, 
this has cream in it. And he's like, no, that's milk. It's yes. just so funny. <laughs> like, it's such a silly exchange. It makes me laugh out loud every time. I, I thought that part was really, really clever. I, I don't know why either, but it's just like, it stuck with me. That Their whole relationship is just, when they first meet one another, one built upon the, the thing that they're trying to shed in so many of their other relationships, right? Which is like this... Uh, inauthentic kind yeah. of like facade this like i i'm a a tax auditor and i don't have any problems outside of here or any life out of here and yeah you're a business owner and i'm here to look at your books and you run a perfectly clean uh <laughs> fine business and and that all goes away very quickly right yes. like uh francis eventually tells thomas he's like look you've been on our radar for years now we know that you're like <laughs> fucking around like I came in here just to like get the evidence I need, but we know you're cooking the books. We know that you've got this <laughs> smuggling operation. Like you're, you're fucked. Yes. Uh, and he uses it as leverage in order to uh, get him to do some investigatory work yes. within Exotica because we, we didn't even mention as that as a result of Francis touching uh, Mia Kirshner's character in that scene, he is promptly ejected which is exactly what eric was hoping for elias right. Cotes's character he uh kind of goaded him on and encouraged him to touch her so that he could come over and throw him out into the street he gets he gets really really fucking beat up yeah just seriously like... <laughs> it's like very extra the scene where he's driving sarah polly home after that incident yeah. he's just like bleeding from the face and has these open gashes and he's just like Thanks again for babysitting. Here's your money. Like, say hi to your dad for me. She's like, "Are you? Are you going to be okay? Yeah. Like, what, what the fuck just, is this? Just a, a dude performing normalcy in his in his day to day life. You know, aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, like I'm a cool and normal guy, and I just did cool and normal things while you're at my house babysitting my dead daughter. Like, with why my you actually... <laughs> self playing piano accompanying you on the flute, also, which is weird, but. <laughs> <laughs> but he got it he got it tuned for her so That's she's true. able to to play more effectively in practice now. Exactly. Uh so because of that he's no longer allowed in Exotica despite trying to bargain <laughs> with uh Arsene Kanjian's character yeah. too which is a really good scene. That that room like the office and it just has like all like the gilded furniture and like oh, yeah, the it's golden got all her throne. wigs in there and all that stuff. <laughs> it's so fun. It's awesome. Um but they they don't let him back in so he sends in uh, Thomas Don McKellar's character wired up like he's wearing a wire to the table <laughs> to uh, call Christine over and and do a dance for him and while she's dancing he's asking these very pointed questions about Francis and uh, I mean I, I love this scene it, you yeah. know there's kind of that like voyeuristic quality to this too right that that person who's being perceived without realizing it and Francis listening on the other line. And it's the first time that we get the revelation that she knows much more than the film has implied up to this point about his life, about right. who he is and about what's happened to his family. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really interesting too, because you can tell that she like, you know, she kind of, she, she has a sense for things. I think I'm sure as like, you know, people develop in social settings and people develop specific to the jobs that they have. So when um, Francis gets kicked out of the club, she's like, I know he didn't want to do it. Somebody made him do it. Like she already mm -hmm. knows that something is weird about it. And similarly, she already kind of picks up on the fact that like she can trust Thomas, who is asking all of these questions. And she's actually very forthcoming about everything. Yeah. And she kind of had like there's certain times where she makes like a unknowing 
facial expression and that like, I don't know, she knows that Thomas doesn't have a creepy ulterior motive, I guess, like a lot of men would in a strip club getting a private dance or something like that, or a a solo dance, not a private dance, really, because everyone is out there. But yeah, it's (laughs) like she she feels a certain comfort level with Thomas when he's asking her all these questions. But then I also found it really strange, random, maybe a little bit homophobic. I don't know that when Hmm. he goes to the bathroom, he's peeing sitting down. <laughs> I you know I didn't even clock that. Yeah, I was like what yeah. is I was like what is the commentary here? Like I don't look, I don't know if it was Don McKellar's choice. I don't know if he was like I'm going to pee sitting down. I don't know if Adam McGoin was like you should pee sitting down. But hmm. it could be perceived a little bit strangely that he's like the only dude who we've seen pee sitting down this whole time. Very true. There and there are a couple moments like that. I you know, I have like one single gripe yeah. in this film and and this will reveal maybe a little bit of the textures of the ending that we've already been talking about but it's revealed uh you know in the end here in in a very profound way that uh Mia Kirshner is uh someone who comes from kind of a broken home we don't know exactly what the extent of that is uh per se but we do know that like Christina is somebody who is maybe abused in at least in emotional way if not physical ways um uh, and the movie almost sort of implies kind of yeah. tacitly that like her involvement in sex work is as a result of her broken home. And that's the one thing where I'm like, this is a little 90s for me. I totally thought the same thing. I was like, oh, this is like a very old fashioned, I guess, perspective on that. And I mean, he it's it's like he's saying the same thing of the the strip club patron like that like oh all the guys who go there are just so sad and pathetic because they have to pay for affection instead of going out and getting it like the normal way i say with with air quotes or scare quotes or whatever you know it's like he does it does seem to maybe imply some things about the world of sex work that are reductive old-fashioned not true certainly not true of everybody at the very least but Mm -hmm. yeah i i totally agree with that yeah when i was clocking that and on you know, my my second watch in yeah. preparation for this, I, I I realized something interesting about it, which is that the movie has very little judgment of its characters who yeah. are in these kind of like strange repeating cycles of behavior that, you know, we, we might see as as bizarre, odd, uh, deviant. But there is a kind of uh, like undergirding more quiet judgment of it that's like what totally. what you just said which is uh, all these people are broken and thus these are the places where broken people yeah, go yeah exactly um, so but i do yeah. like that it like like what you said like it does have a lot of sympathy for everybody in the movie like you know i think similarly with the way things like all the details are revealed slowly it's like you want to think that this guy is doing something weird or this person's up to something really strange but then you realize like person has a pretty good reason to be engaging in this behavior probably and maybe we shouldn't be so judgmental so yeah it does do Mm -hmm. like an interesting thing of like like you said quietly judging underneath all of it but also being very um sympathetic to all the strangeness and all the characters shouldn't you go to the hospital no i'm fine you don't look fine You worry about me, don't you? You think this is normal? What? What we do? 
What do we do? It's just it. We don't speak about it. You know that feeling you get sometimes, Tracy? That you didn't ask to be brought into the world. Yeah. Well, then who did? What? If you think that you didn't ask to be brought into the world, then who did? saying is nobody asked you if you wanted to be brought into the world you just ended up getting here so the question is now that you're here who's asking you to stay look are you sure you're gonna be okay yes On that subject of like this non-judgmental kind of approach to all these characters, the one thing that I couldn't get out of my head, I, I guess just because I, I am myself a recovering addict and alcoholic, mm-hmm. is the way that this kind of maps to an understanding of cycles of addiction. You know, you you learn in a lot of these rooms in, in 12-step programs and mm-hmm. talking to other people who do this a lot. And, and from my own personal experience, that many of these things that people are doing with substances are a kind of like neural pathway that you carve as a means to cope with your pain, cope with your trauma, something mm-hmm. that you eventually just like learn to do as a trigger response. Right. And so I couldn't help but see all of these characters and their habits and their routines as something similar. You know, it's it's that same sense of alienation, that same sense of pain, and they're going through the motions. And it's something that, again, like from like a logical standpoint, from from an outside kind of casual objective observer, you look at it and you say, this is weird. You know, at, at best, yeah. this is weird. Maybe even this is harmful or this is wrong. You yeah. Know, the same way you would with with any sort of practice of, you know, like uh, excessive like drug abuse or, or consumption in a way that's unhealthy for you. But it all makes sense. And it's all sort of like justified within the context of the film. And you and you just kind of see that. I don't know whether he means to or not. I feel like Egoin is very tapped into something very real about human experience as it pertains to all of these kind of strange ways that we operate when we are uh, in, in the midst of you know this this constant sensation of alienation in modernity totally. and trying to find a way to just cope with that and to like ease our pain and uh, I, I think about it a lot you know that like all of us when we when we're not observed have these habitual kind of like activities that we probably all do in in secret you know like uh, unregarded that someone else would find strange that we don't tell anyone else about totally. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit obvious, but I found it so kind of like moving when Mm -hmm. I was watching the film that it was like someone here is clearly, uh, I don't know, capturing this in a way that isn't, you know, like a a one-to-one sort of, uh, expression of addiction or, or substance abuse or anything. But what it is here is a very non-judgmental and, and very, uh, empathetic look at that same kind of impulse. From for all these people's perspectives, yeah, totally. Uh, that's expansion of the Aaron lore on the <laughs> podcast for this one. Uh, so after this scene in Exotica, where Dama Keller's character is wearing a wire, Christina has told all this kind of stuff about 
uh, not just what she knows about Francis, but the fact that she's also getting something out of these experiences. Uh, Francis makes a plan. <laughs> he decides that he's going to, because uh, also when uh, when Thomas goes to the bathroom, he is similarly kind of accosted by yes. this disembodied voice uh, who we come to learn and find out uh, is Eric. And and he's able to put together the fact that it is in fact the, the, the DJ, the, the MC at the strip club who is responsible for all of his grief and all of his strife <laughs> in the moment. Uh, so he's like, I'm going to go get your gun and <laughs> you are going to go into the club. You're going to touch Christina. You're going to get kicked out of the club. And when Eric kicks you out, I'm going to be there to shoot and kill him. <laughs> I, I'll, maybe an escalation, a little bit of an, uh, you know, like. Eh, it's but. a pretty normal response, in my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> who, who amongst us has never. Who amongst uh, us has never fantasized about k- killing an enemy, perhaps? I don't know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Specifically, the uh, the MC at our favorite strip club. Exactly. After we've been banned for life. Exactly. Uh, and this is where the the film takes on again even more incredible dimensions. At a point where I was already sort of like very emotionally taxed. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know how much more of this uh, the film has in store. A lot, as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, I guess you know to to add additional color and uh, explanation here, we also learn through some flashbacks that Christina and Eric first meet and become involved with one another while they are volunteering with other members of the community looking for the body of a young girl. I don't even know if they ever say girl. I think they do say that she's a young girl at mm-hmm. some point, but that they're looking for a body of somebody who's missing. Uh, so at the end here, when this plan is all getting put into place, we see Thomas put his hand on Christina, like on her thigh. Mm-hmm. And it's a very kind of heightened moment. It's it's escalating to this you know grand climax when he finally does it. And she... Uh, assumes agency and she takes his hand and she pulls it away yeah and resets it and then continues about the dance Mm -hmm. Uh, our first indication perhaps that the emotional dynamics at play between her and thomas uh, are far different than those between her and francis right we also see that uh eric has somehow made his way outside of the club (laughs) he is not in the club ready to bounce uh, which is why thomas doesn't get kicked out Uh, immediately and in a moment where this flashback and the current moment at the club converge we learn that eric and christina were looking for lisa francis's daughter who we already know was killed and died tragically and they were the ones who found her body right and eric reveals this to francis in this moment in like the parking lot next to exotica (laughs) that he was the one who found her and who like notified the police. Uh, and in a moment where Francis has a gun pointed at him, he relents, he drops the the weapon and he embraces Eric. Yeah. What a moment. It's, it's really tremendous. I am getting chills kind of just discussing it with you right now. It's so crazy. It's the last thing I expected in yeah. this part because th- the movie does a, a, a terrific job of, getting you to that point too of of sort of loathing eric for all of his kind of 
the, the means by which he's totally. gone about this and the pain that he's caused while also recognizing that Francis is like certainly in the wrong. Like no, no one deserves to be like gunned down and like outside the <laughs> strip club, you know, just for being like a jealous boyfriend or anything like that. That's not how this works. But something that I, I feel like on paper and that like in a, a different kind of movie, maybe something more attuned to the general rhythms of like a studio production right, would have rung as like corny. A, court, a big plot twist yeah, at the end. Yeah, totally. Uh, in, instead, just like totally worked me over. It just, it knocked me off my feet when I saw it. Yeah, it's just, it's a really beautiful moment of forgiveness, I think. And that does totally tie in with like the uh, 12 step, um, like ideology. I don't know what other word to use for it right now, I guess, but I'm like a <laughs> bit familiar with it. And like, yeah. there is a lot about, um, forgiving yourself in addition to others and you know, forgiveness is no favor as the book says or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's like a really nice moment where like, I don't know, they're able to just put all of the petty like BS aside so that they can, I don't know, just, just bury the hatchet kind of in all of, and all of this stuff because like, you know, everything has kind of been messed up since the point at which he listened to Eric and touched Chrissy. Like Chrissy's mad. Um, Zoe's mad. Eric is mad. <laughs> Everyone's having a terrible time from that yeah. point forward. And so like, it's, it's a really nice thing of just like, let's just absolve everyone every of everything or whatever and kind of just move on. And it's, I think, like, you know, I don't know if Francis is ever going to go back to the club or if he's going to be able to, but I would like to think that he, after this moment, maybe uh, doesn't need that routine specifically to mm-hmm. maybe try to not move on, but to heal from the the trauma that he's endured. And, like, I also feel like it's an interesting thing in that, like, oh, this, like, shared trauma of the death of his daughter has brought not only her and uh francis together but it's also kind of what brought um chrissy and eric together in their relationship Mm -hmm. like their relationship which is tumultuous or was tumultuous was basically the result of trauma bonding which doesn't usually lead to good things yeah it's not the healthy start to a relationship (laughs) it's not really a meet cute so no it's it's the opposite of a meet cute is the furthest thing from that but you know there is maybe I don't know. In this movie, there is a lot of obviously pain and grief and loss. And I don't know about you. Like, I I didn't necessarily find it like, you know, this beguiling moment where, you know, I'm, I'm swept into kind of like a more romantic read on anything. But throughout the course of the film, I do feel like there is a, a strain of this kind of consistency of experience throughout everybody that rings to me as Egoyan kind of aiming for like a a suggestion of solidarity amongst yeah. people within this like machine of like modern capitalism. Totally. Right? And that like, even though we're alienated and that we like, you know, have this pain and our connections are, are very quickly severed or taken away from us. And, you know, there's these nefarious actors that the thing that we all share is the capacity for those connections to manifest and to sever eventually for totally. them to kind of like ebb and flow that way. I, I don't know. I just, it, it, it rings to me as something, you know, I, I kept reading all of these reviews that said, you know, like, Oh, emotional gut punch, like brutal ending, like, you know, like uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave you, you know, with the wind knocked out of you, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean that this movie does do that. And it does have like a, a very muted 
very kind of somber final moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't, to me, come off as cynical or attempting yeah. to like brutalize you for in, into feeling a certain thing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's like you said, it's definitely like an emotional uh, throttling. It's not even a roller coaster. It just kind of it's pretty draining of, of, yeah. of an experience, but in a good way. I like movies that make me feel bad personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like the ending. I don't read it in a, in a cynical way either. It's not like the kind of gut punch ending that you get from like a Michael Haneke movie, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the it's much more, I guess, in its optimism in the face of a lot of cynicism or like negativity, somewhat akin to, I guess, first reformed, you know, like mm-hmm. that in in a situation in a world surrounded by such like ugliness and filth and sadness, like there's still um you know, you can still impact people positively. And as corny as that sounds, it's really pulled off really nicely. And I don't think in a corny way at all with this one. I completely agree with you. And also uh, bonus hit factory points, 10 of them to you for referencing <laughs> what is like one of my favorite films of the 2010s, yep. Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Um, and, and a great connection there. You're right. Like they are both films that embrace human connection, specifically like love and the fostering of of a sensation of love amidst turmoil that is outside of our hands yeah. that is just like kind of human experience within uh, a modern context so yeah. well done to you. <laughs> uh so and then in the final moments here like we've been talking to we've been leading up to this point let's just drop the hammer finally <laughs> here uh, there is one final revelation here we have already kind of uh, insinuated and and heard suggestion that Christina comes from a broken home or or has some sort of you know baggage herself, some sort of trauma and turmoil in her life, and we enter into this recurring visual motif of these VHS tapes, these video recordings that Francis has been making of his daughter at the player piano with his wife. Um, and throughout, we see that those images have like a very kind of um, confessional quality to them. Like they, they seem to have like subsumed all of the actual memories. This is the first time we see them not in a way that is like a picture frame or right. a, a video uh, tape, like, you know, footage. So we, we are in a flashback and he is recording his wife and child at the very moment that the doorbell rings and... Christina enters their home and it's revealed that she is uh, Lisa's former babysitter and knows this family intimately and very well. And uh, the the final, final moment (laughs) is Francis driving a young Christina home from the babysitting gig and exchanging money with her or paying her the same way he he pays uh, Sarah Polly's character in many instances within the film. And also suggesting to her that he's noticed that she's uh, maybe a little bit more despondent, detached, quieter than usual, and that he's concerned that maybe something isn't right in her home and that he will always be a a, a person that can support her and listen to her and protect her from whatever it is that's happening there. And the final moment is a very well-framed symmetrical shot of Christina walking very slowly up the steps, up the walkway, yep. 
and through the door of her childhood home. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, not I. What I mean, what's to say beyond that? It, it again is like you know, kind of a gut wrenching moment, but it reveals to us again the complexity of that dynamic within Exotica. That in those moments when he is projecting, when Francis is projecting the loss of his daughter and saying these phrases of you know you don't deserve this you, you who who could possibly harm you right he's he's speaking of lisa but he's also speaking directly to chrissy as well it's a pretty powerful ending i mean he really lands the plane with this one for sure but yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of another another like you know people talk about this with um therapy and also it comes up in like 12 step parlance i guess where it's like you sometimes you need to speak to your inner child and you need to be kind to your inner child. And so it's yeah. like a very interesting thing to like, you know, rewatching the movie and realizing what is going on as you watch it makes it so much more sad because you're like, wow. Yeah. He's really just like talking to her inner child while she's giving him a lap dance. And it's like yeah. <laughs> a very strange juxtaposition of things. And it goes from being strange in the way of like the first time you watch it to then being strange, like, it's still strange. It just has a different strangeness. It's not as, yeah. uh, again, not as sinister, but more just like a sad strangeness to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it adds all those dimensions to it that, while still bizarre, makes it even, I don't know, just more painful to, to watch totally. every single time. Totally. And it imbues it with a lot more power, you know, like I suggested at the beginning of this, uh, on rewatch. You know, yeah. it, it's not, it's not a, mechanical plot twist it's not something that's just there to uh shatter us at the end and you know the, then the movie loses all momentum or reward right. after that you know watch this it's not like uh finding out bruce willis is dead or anything <laughs> um, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> uh, to, to be fair to mr Shyamalan, that movie actually is still incredibly rewarding on rewatch <laughs> uh, even knowing the twist just a just a pointed example that i could think of off the top of my head uh but yeah, I mean, it, it it just colors so many of those interactions. It colors all of the experiences that she has, that longing for a paternal figure, the way she clings to Zoe in yeah. the film. Um, and then, you know, the the kind of like sense of abandonment that she feels at the hands of Eric at a certain point, too, when she finds out that Eric has kind of sidestepped her and gotten into this uh, contract with Zoe in order to like father her child. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's so that whole thing is so strange. The the uh, the other interesting thing at the end too is like, I mean, you know, I think it's just like to close the loop on the the thesis of the film talking about one things being exotic and two like everything being um a trick mirror. I don't remember which way mirror we decided it was one way or two way, but I'll just say trick mirror. Three way mirror at this Damn, point. Damn, you're blowing my mind right now, man. Um, when when he's like, yeah, I got her an exotic baby grand piano. And he talks about like, I'm like, okay, a little bit funny, like a little hammy, but that's fine. But then, you know, he's like, yeah, and she's such a smart kid. Like, she's like, isn't that a contradiction in words? Like, what's that called or whatever? And it's kind of funny that like, I mean, of course, like by the end of the movie, you're you're attuned to the language of mm -hmm. the film in the way that like you are noticing that every experience and everything we see is essentially twofold. But it's a nice little bookend, I feel like, to that, that he just brings it in the one last time when you're watching the the home video. That's also part of the movie. So it's like, you know, a little bit um, referring to the way that you as the viewer have been watching the movie through like multiple different uh, you've been watching things happen through the mirror. You're watching the movie, and that itself is an act of voyeurism in some ways. And now you're watching like the home movie on the movie, and it's, 
it's like an onion. That's all I can say. <laughs> Man, is it is it ever like an onion? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think you're right. It, it's it's peeling back its own layers. It's revealing itself, um, and it's it's rewarding from the the, the first moment to the last as yeah. it all kind of unpacks itself. At first, it's like a a very you know kind of like valiantly staged mystery almost. You you kind of have to kind of play along with it for a little bit. And, and I found myself very confounded by it for totally. a, a good portion of the first like actor or, you know, yeah. half of its runtime. Uh, and then you get to the end and it leaves you just, you know, in pieces that you have to pick up yes. of yourself. Totally. Really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also just funny just to like, I was reading a little bit about the way this movie was marketed because he like Adam McGoy and really didn't want to go with like you know he was very uh, adamantly against the schoolgirl stuff being on the Mm -hmm. movie poster and yet like miramax i guess did market it to be to seem like it was a little bit more salacious and steamy and then people are thinking they're gonna go see like i don't know an adult um like not erotic thriller but like something in in that family i guess and then they walk out being like damn i'm depressed what the hell so right they have like inverse boners by the end exactly. of the film when they went to be when they went to be titillated <laughs> um yeah I, I i read that too it's it's so strange to me that for its north american release or for its u.s release that yeah. they'd say no this is an erotic thriller yeah like like nah it's not wh- what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> uh, um i also read and I, I hadn't noticed this until i went on to imdb actually but uh this film also won an avn yes. award i wanted to bring that up too amazing <laughs> that's so crazy yeah. it's so crazy and again like it's you know like i guess marketing paid off there but it's it won i guess like a a mainstream like erotic film award or something from uh like the porn awards basically like now i want to uh, go and see what the other like movies are that won that award in other years i'm so curious you'd hope that showgirls took, it, took home the, the prize so. but uh yeah i i'll have to look it up i i was <laughs> kind of I, I was very carefully googling search terms like i don't want to end up on you know like too many sites in my browser history with like avn awards and pop-ups right. and all this stuff at this point but <laughs> you know we'll open that incognito tab and do a little bit of uh of searching and find out exactly what uh what other titles took home <laughs> took home this prestigious uh award and exactly and, uh, yeah congratulations to it <laughs> I, I i if i were a filmmaker like adam mcgoyan i would probably take more pride in winning that avn than being nominated for two oscars oh, for the suite hereafter absolutely yes <laughs> <sighs> well uh I, I guess we're coming to i think the, the close of uh the content here but a couple of straight observations that i had just things i, I know i wanted to bring up mm-hmm. we haven't mentioned much of sarah polly's performance in this oh yeah how do you feel about sarah polly in this film soraya um i was honestly i was like wow she's actually doing pretty well like i was pretty mm-hmm. convinced i don't know i feel like with kid actors it can be hit or miss but yeah. Yeah, I think she I, I think she does pretty strong work. I yeah. like what kind of character they give her to play with because of yeah. everybody in this film, she's the one that like this will sound judgmental on my part after already praising the the sort of non-judgmental nature of the film, but she's the only one in the movie who like isn't deluded. In oh any way. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Like she, she just is very matter of fact. She has a, one of my favorite moments in the the movie uh, where Francis asks her, says, you know, like, you don't want to come over to babysit anymore. And she just straight up tells him, she says, 
there's no baby to sit. <laughs> Um, and, yeah. and it's it's very simple. It's very elegant, I guess, but but it works so well. It's just you know the the matter of factness with which she's able to kind of like cut through everyone else's bullshit. Yeah, she she does the same with her dad, who you know tries to kind of like equivocate. Is like, oh, you go over there to practice your flute, right? Yes, she's totally. Like, dad, I don't go over there to practice. I go over there to watch a a, a ghost. It's like, a very like accurate portrayal of being a child growing up in an environment. Um, that is maybe too adult or when you're exposed to too many things that children shouldn't necessarily be exposed to like it's like a bit of an Al-Anon-esque upbringing I feel like and so that's mm-hmm. like I was like yeah that's totally like the wise beyond her years child speaking <laughs> absolutely and I mean she does such a good job with that I, I know that she's collaborated with Adam McGoyan since especially on right. uh, The Sweet Hereafter in 97 and has now become of course a uh, much heralded and award-winning writer and filmmaker in her own right i'm trying to see if i wrote anything else down (laughs) i feel like i feel like i covered everything oh i just wrote down life lesson never take advice from the men's room i think (laughs) maybe that's a good takeaway for this but i don't know i i haven't experienced it personally aside from just watching it in movies so i don't know what it's truly like in there but yeah i will say that uh most of the screeds i've read that have just been kind of etched into the wall <laughs> either with you know like a paper clip or with like a sharpie uh have not been things that i would probably follow through on i would not call that number sure for good times yeah. i would not you know the the only one i think the only message i've ever read in a bathroom that i i, I took with me and have uh carried into other parts of my life. One time I, I went up to a stall in a bar, uh, a urinal, and right at eye level in big black Sharpie letters, it just said, your dick is fine. <laughs> and I I will carry that with me. I will tell all of my uh, penis possessing friends, like, your dick is fine. Oh, like, that's beautiful. Yeah. And with that, I think we have come to the end of our conversation on Adam Agoyan's Exotica. Uh, Sarai Sogati, thank you again so much for being here. You have been an absolute pleasure to talk to today. Thank you. I, I had so much fun. Such an honor to be here. So thank you for asking me to be on this. Absolutely. We will certainly have you back again sometime. Uh, it's It's been a, a total blast. And we'll bring Carly along for the next one, yeah, too. Yeah, so, I would love you know. to have her on. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Everyone always uh, misses her. I, I feel sometimes, like I said, like I'm, I'm giving short shrift to our people because uh, it's only one half of the Hit Factor experience, but I hope you had a pleasant enough time to come back and join us for that. 100%, yes. Soraya, where can people find you and all the things that you do and work on around the internet? Yeah, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Soraya Spaghetti, S-O-R-A-Y-A, Spaghetti spelled the correct way. Um, My band is called Night Talks, like talking at night. You can find us on streaming services, YouTube, all of that good stuff. Um, and I think my substack is just sariasibgati.substack.com, but I post links on my socials every once in a while. So you can find them there. You can message me and ask that. I think that covers it. Fantastic. <laughs> we will make sure to link to all of it so that people can follow along, uh, with the band, with your writing, with Beautiful. you, uh, on your socials. From our end of things, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod, patreon.com slash Hit Factory Pod. Uh, Send your friends. Give us money. We could always use more of you. There's a Discord that you all are invited to. We're having great conversations in there all the time. You know you want to be in it. Come and hang out. Uh, We will give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray. Thank you for your continued support. And we will see you all 
the next time. Take it easy, everyone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows, everybody knows that the boat is leaking, everybody knows the captain lied, everybody got this broken feeling. Just die. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that you love me, baby. Everybody knows that you really do. Discreet, but there were so many people you just had.